library of the world's best literature ancient and modern volume six by various authors section twenty sir thomas brown by francis bacon this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain sir thomas brown sixteen hundred and five to sixteen eighty two by francis bacon when sir thomas brown in the last decade of his life was asked to furnish data for the writing of his memoirs in woods athenae oxoniensis he gave in a letter to his friend mr aubrey in the fewest words his birthplace and the places of his education his admission as socius honorarius of the college of physicians in london the date of his being knighted and the titles of the four books or tracts which he had printed and ended with have some miscellaneous tracts which may be published this account of himself curter than many an epitaph and scantier in details than the requirements of a census takers blank may serve with many other signs that one finds scattered among the pages of this author to show his rare modesty and effacement of his physical self he seems like some other thoughtful and sensitive natures before and since averse or at least indifferent to being put on record as an eating digesting sleeping and clothes wearing animal of that species of which his contemporary sir samuel pepys stands as the classical instance and which the newspaper interviewer of our own day that fellow who would vulgarise the day of judgment has trained to the most noxious degree of offensiveness sir thomas felt undoubtedly that having admitted that select company fit audience though few who were students of the religio medici to close intimacy with his highest mental processes and conditions his separable accidents affairs of assimilation and secretion as one may say were business between himself and his grocer and tailor his cook and his laundress the industrious research of mr simon wilkin who in eighteen thirty six produced the completest edition william pickering london of the literary remains of sir thomas brown has gathered from all sources his own notebooks domestic and friendly correspondence allusions of contemporary writers and the works of subsequent biographers all that we are likely this side of paradise to know of this great scholar and admirable man the main facts of his life are as follows he was born in the parish of st michael's cheap in london on the nineteenth of october sixteen hundred and five the year of the gunpowder plot his father as is apologetically admitted by granddaughter mrs littleton was a tradesman a mercer though a gentleman of good family in cheshire generosa familia says sir thomas's own epitaph that he was the parent of his son's temperament a devout man with a leaning towards mysticism in religion is shown by the charming story mrs littleton tells of him exhibiting traits worthy of the best stages of faith and more to be expected in the father of a mediaeval saint than in a prosperous cheapside mercer 
whose son was to become one of the most learned and philosophical physicians of the age of Harvey and Sydenham. His father used to open his breast when he was asleep and kiss it in prayers over him, as to said of Origen's father, that the Holy Ghost would take possession there. Clearly it was with reverent memory of this good man that Sir Thomas, near the close of his own long life, wrote, Among thy multiplied acknowledgments, lift up one hand under heaven, that thou wert born of honest parents, that modesty, humility, patience, and veracity lay in the same egg, and came into the world with thee. This loving father, of whom one would fain know more, died in the early childhood of his son Thomas. He left a handsome estate of nine thousand pounds, and a widow not wholly inconsolable, with her third portion, and not unduly deferred second marriage, to a titled gentleman, Sir Thomas Button, a knight so scantily, and at the same time so variously, described as a worthy person who had great places, and a bad member of mutinous and unworthy carriage, that one is content to leave him as a problematical character. The boy Thomas Brown being left to the care of guardians, his estate was despoiled. Though to what extent does not appear, nor can it be considered greatly deplorable, since it did not prevent his early schooling at that ancient and noble foundation of Winchester, nor, in 1623, his entrance into Pembroke College, Oxford, and in due course his graduation in 1626 as Bachelor of Arts. With what special assistance or direction he began his studies in medical science cannot now be ascertained, but after taking his degree of Master of Arts in 1629, he practised physic for about two years in some uncertain place in Oxfordshire. He then began a course of travel unusually extensive for that day, his stepfather, upon occasion of his official duties under the government, showed him all Ireland in some visitation of the forts and castles. It is improbable that Ireland at that time long detained a traveller essentially literary in his tastes. Brown betook himself to France and Italy, where he appears to have spent about two years, residing at Montpellier and Padua then great centres of medical learning, with students drawn from most parts of Christendom. Returning homeward through Holland, he received the degree of Doctor of Medicine from the University of Leiden in 1633, and settled in practice at Halifax, England. At this time, favoured probably by the leisure which largely attends the beginning of a medical career, but which is rarely so laudably or productively employed, he wrote the treatise Religio Medici, which more than any other of his works has established his fame and won the affectionate admiration of thoughtful readers. This production was not printed until seven years later, although some unauthorised manuscript copies, more or less faulty, were in circulation, when, in 1642, it arrived in a most depraved copy at the press, 
Brown felt it necessary to vindicate himself by publishing a correct edition, although he protests its original intention was not public, and being a private exercise directed to myself, what is delivered therein was rather a memorial unto me than an example of rule unto any other. In 1636 he removed to Norwich and permanently established himself there in the practice of physic. There, in 1641, he married Dorothy Milam, a lady of good family in Norfolk, thereby not only improving his social connections, but securing a wife of such symmetrical proportion to her worthy husband, both in the graces of her body and mind, that they seemed to come together by a kind of natural magnetism. Such, at least, was the view of an intimate friend of more than forty years, Reverend John Whitehood, in the minutes which, at the request of the widow, he drew up after Sir Thomas's death, and which contained the most that is known of his personal appearance and manners. Evidently the marriage was a happy one for forty-one years, when the Lady Dorothy was left maestissima coniux as her husband's stately epitaph, which with many an isimus declares, Twelve children were born of it, and though only four of them survived their parents, such mortality in carefully tended and well-circumstanced families was less remarkable than it would be now, when two centuries more of progress in medical science have added security and length to human life. The good mother, had she not endeared herself to the modern reader by the affectionate gentleness and the quaint glimpses of domestic life that her family letters reveal, would be irresistible by the ingeniously bad spelling in which she revelled, transgressing even the wide limits then allowed to feminine heterography. It is noteworthy that Dr. Brown's professional prosperity was not impaired by the suspicion which early attached to him, and soon deepened into conviction that he was addicted to literary pursuits. He was in high repute as a physician. His practice was extensive, and he was diligent in it, as also in those works of literature and scientific investigation which occupied all snatches of time, he says, as medical vacations and the fruitless importunity of uroscopy would permit. His large family was liberally reared, his hospitality and his charities were ample. In 1646 he printed his second book, the largest and most operous of all his productions, the Pseudodoxia Epidemica, or Inquiries into Vulgar and Common Errors, the work evidently of the Orae Subsequae of many years. In 1658 he gave to the public two smaller but important and most characteristic works, Hydriotaphia and The Garden of Cyrus. Beside these publications he left many manuscripts which appeared posthumously, the most important of them for its size and general interest being Christian Morals. When Sir Thomas's long life drew to its close, it was with all the blessings which should accompany old age. His domestic life had been one of felicity. His eldest and only surviving son, Edward Brown, 
had become a scholar after his father's own heart and though not inheriting his genius was already renowned in london one of the physicians to the king and in a way to become as afterwards he did president of the college of physicians all his daughters who had attained womanhood were well married he lived in the society of the honourable and learned and had received from the king the honour of knighthood Footnote. as for this business of the knighting one hesitates fully to adopt dr johnson's remark that charles the second had skill to discover excellence and virtue to reward it at least with such honorary distinctions as cost him nothing a candid observer of the walk and conversation of this illustrious monarch finds room for doubt that he was an attentive reader or consistent admirer of the religio medici or christian morals and though his own personal history might have contributed much to a complete catalogue of vulgar errors brown's treatise so named did not include divagations from common decency in its scope and so may have failed to impress the royal mind the fact is that the king on his visit to norwich looking about for somebody to knight intended as usual on such occasions to confer the title on the mayor of the city but this functionary some brewer or grocer perhaps of whom nothing else than this incident is recorded declined the honour whereupon the gap was stopped with dr brown End of footnote. mr john evelyn carrying out a long and cherished plan of seeing one whom he had known and admired by his writings visited him at norwich in sixteen seventy one he found sir thomas among fit surroundings his whole house and garden being a paradise and a cabinet of rarities and that of the best collections especially medals books plants and natural things Footnote. these two distinguished authors were of congenial tastes and both cultivated the same latinistic literary diction their meeting must have occasioned a copious effusion of those long-tailed words in ossetianation which both had so readily at command or made to order it is regrettable that evelyn never completed a work entitled elysium britannicum which he planned and to which brown contributed a chapter of coronary plants it would have taken rank with its author's silver among english classics End of footnote here we have the right background and accessories for whitefoot's portrait of the central figure his complexion and hair answerable to his name his stature moderate and habit of body neither fat nor lean but usarkos never seen to be transported with mirth or dejected with sadness always cheerful but rarely merry at any sensible rate seldom heard to break a jest and when he did apt to blush at the levity of it his gravity was natural without affectation his modesty visible in a natural habitual blush which was increased upon the least occasion and oft discovered without any observable cause so free from loquacity or much talkativeness 
that he was sometimes difficult to be engaged in any discourse though when he was so it was always singular and never trite or vulgar a man so lofty and self-contained might be expected to leave a life so long honourable and beneficent with becoming dignity sir thomas's last sickness a brief but very painful one was endured with exemplary patience founded upon the christian philosophy and with a meek rational and religious courage much to the edification of his friend whitefoot one may even see a kind of felicity in his death falling exactly on the completion of his seventy-seventh year he was buried in the church of st peter mancroft where his monument still claims regard as chief among the memorabilia of that noble sanctuary footnote in the course of repairs in august eighteen forty his coffin was broken open by pickaxe the bones were found in good preservation the fine auburn hair had not lost its freshness it is painful to relate that the cranium was removed and placed in the pathological museum of norwich hospital labelled as the gift of some person name not recalled whose own cranium is probably an object of interest solely to its present proprietor who knows the fate of his own bones we insult not over their ashes says sir thomas the curator of the museum feels that he has a clever joke on the dead man when with a grin he points to a label bearing these words from the hydriotaphia to be knaved out of our graves to have our skulls made drinking bowls and our bones turned into pipes to delight and sport our enemies are tragical abominations escaped in burning burials End of footnote. at the first appearance of brown's several publications they attracted that attention from the learned and thoughtful which they have ever since retained the religio medici was soon translated into several modern languages as well as into latin and became the subject of curiously diverse criticism the book received the distinction of a place in the roman index expurgatorius while from various points of view its author was regarded as a romanist an atheist a deist a pantheist and as bearing the number six 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 somewhere about him a worthy quaker a fellow townsman was so impressed by his tone of quietistic mysticism that he felt sure the philosophic doctor was guided by the inward light and wrote sending a godly book and proposing to clinch his conversion in a personal interview such are the perils that environ the man who not only repeats a creed in sincerity but ventures to do so and to utter his own thinking about it from brown's own day to the present time his critics and commentators have been numerous and distinguished one of the most renowned among them being dr johnson whose life of the author prefixed to an edition of the christian morals in seventeen fifty six is a fine specimen of that facile and effective hack-work of which johnson was master 
in that characteristic way of his half of patronage half of reproof and wholly pedagogical he summons his subject to the bar of his dialectics and according to his lights administers justice he admits that brown has great excellencies and uncommon sentiments and that his scholarship and science are admirable but strongly condemns his style it is a vigorous but rugged it is learned but pedantic it is deep but obscure it strikes but does not please it commands but does not allure his tropes are harsh and his combinations uncouth behemoth prescribing rules of locomotion to the swan by how much would english letters have been the poorer if brown had learned his art of johnson notwithstanding such objurgations some have supposed that the style of johnson perhaps without conscious intent was founded upon that of brown a tone of oracular authority an academic latinism sometimes disregarding the limitations of the unlearned reader an elaborate balancing of antitheses in the same period these are qualities which the two writers have in common but the resemblance such as it is is skin deep johnson is a polemic by nature and at his best cogent and triumphant in argument his thought is carefully kept level with the apprehension of the ordinary reader what arrayed in a verbal pomp simulating the expression of something weighty and profound brown is intuitive and ever averse to controversy feeling as he exquisitely says that many have too rashly charged the troops of error and remain as trophies unto the enemies of truth a man may be in as just possession of the truth as of a city and yet be forced to surrender calmly philosophic he writes for kindred minds and his concepts satisfying his own intellect he delivers them with as little passion as an aeolian harp answering the wind and lingers not for applause or explanation his being those thoughts that wander through eternity he means that we too shall have a glimpse of incomprehensibles and thoughts things which thoughts but tenderly touch how grandly he rounds his pregnant paragraphs with phrases which for stately and compulsive rhythm sonorous harmony and sweetly solemn cadences are almost matchless in english prose and lack only the mechanism of metre to give them the highest rank as verse man is a noble animal splendid in ashes and pompous in the grave solemnizing nativities and deaths with equal lustre nor omitting ceremonies of bravery in the infancy of his nature when personations shall cease and histrionism of happiness be over when reality shall rule and all shall be as they shall be for ever such passages as these and the whole of the fragment on mummies 
one can scarcely recite without falling into something of that chant which the blank verse of milton and tennyson seems to enforce that the religio medici was the work of a gentleman before his thirtieth year not a recluse nor trained in a cloister but active in a calling which keeps closest touch with the passions and frailties of humanity seems to justify his assertion i have shaken hands with delight in square brackets solicit by way of parting close square brackets in my warm blood and canicular days so uniformly lofty and dignified is its tone and so austere its morality that the book might be taken for the fruit of those later and sadder years that bring the philosophic mind its frank confessions and calm analysis of motive and action had been compared with montaigne's if montaigne had been graduated after a due education in purgatory or if his pedigree had been remotely crossed with st anthony and he had lived to see the fluctus decumanus gathering in the tide of puritanism the likeness would have been closer the religio medici says coleridge is a fine portrait of a handsome man in his best clothes there is truth in the criticism and if there is no colour of a sneer in it it is entirely true who does not feel when following brown into his study or his garden that here is a kind of cloistral retreat from the commonplaces of the outside world that the handsome man is a true gentleman and a noble friend and that his best clothes are his everyday wear this aloofness of brown's which holds him apart in the still air of delightful studies is no affectation it is an innate quality he thinks his thoughts in his own way and the style is the man never more truly than with him one of his family letters mentions the execution of charles i as a horrid murder and another speaks of cromwell as a usurper but nowhere in anything intended for the public eye is there an indication that he lived in the most tumultuous and heroic period of english history not a word shows that shakespeare was of the generation just preceding his nor that milton and george herbert and henry vaughan numerous as other parallels in their thought and feeling and in his were his contemporaries constant and extensive as are his excursions into ancient literature it is rare for him to make any reference to writers of his own time yet with all his delight in antiquity and reverence for the great names of former ages he is keen in the quest for new discoveries his commonplace books abound in ingenious queries and minute observations regarding physical facts conceived in the very spirit of our modern school what is the use of due clause in dogs he does not instantly answer as a schoolboy in this darwinian day would to carry out an analogy but the mere asking of the question sets him ahead of his age 
see too his curious inquiries into the left-footedness of parrots and left-handedness of certain monkeys and squirrels the epoch-making announcement of his fellow physician harvey he quickly appreciates at its true value his piece de circles sang which discovery i prefer to that of columbus and here again a truly surprising suggestion of the great results achieved a century and two centuries later by jenner and pasteur concerning canine madness whether it holdeth not better at second hand than at first hand so that if a dog bite a horse and that horse a man the evil proves less considerable he is the first to observe and describe that curious product of the decomposition of flesh known to modern chemists as adiposia he is full of eager anticipation of the future join sense unto reason he cries and experiment unto speculation and so give life unto embryon truths and verities yet in their chaos what libraries of new volumes after times will behold and in what a new world of knowledge the eyes of our posterity may be happy a few ages may joyfully declare but acute and active as our author's perceptions were they did not prevent his sharing the then prevalent theory which assigned to the devil and to witches who were his ministers an important part in the economy of the world this belief affords so easy a solution of some problems otherwise puzzling that this degenerate age may look back with envy upon those who held it in serene and comfortable possession it is to be regretted however that the eminent lord chief justice hale in sixteen sixty four presiding at the trial for witchcraft of two women should have called dr brown apparently as amicus curiae to give his view of the fits which were supposed to be the work of the witches he was clearly of the opinion that the devil had even more to do with that case than he has with most cases of hysteria and consequently the witches it must be said fared no better in sir matthew hale's court than many of their kind in various parts of christendom about the same time but it will be unreasonable for us to hold the ghost of sir thomas deeply culpable because while he showed in most matters an exceptionally enlightened liberality of opinion and practice in this one particular he declined to deny the scientific dictum of previous ages and the popular belief of his own time the mental attitude of reverent belief in its symbolic value in which this devout philosopher contemplated the material world is that of many of those who have since helped most to build the structure of natural science the rapturous exclamation of linnaeus my god i think thy thoughts after thee comes like an antiphonal response by the man of flowers to these passages in the religio medici this visible world is but a picture of the invisible wherein as in a portrait things are not truly but inequivocal shapes and as they counterfeit 
some real substance in that invisible fabric. Things are really true as they correspond unto God's conception, and have so much verity as they hold of conformity unto that intellect in whose idea they had their first determinations. End of section 20